0: This is the Palace of Westminster as seen on tours and as seen on TV. Its principal floor is designed to be seen and admired, from its splendid depictions of Magna Carta, the Armada, the Civil War, Trafalgar and Waterloo, to its minton and encaustic tiles and marble busts. What a contrast with the ground floor. Its network of rather prosaic courtyards and corridors is somewhat more utilitarian. You might say that one floor is dignified and the other efficient, to paraphrase Walter Badgett, but the Commons Chamber could not function without the engine room below. Well, I think all sensible people have the British Constitution as one of their hobbies. It is the most interesting uh, matter to, to discuss and be informed about. As Dicey said, Dicey argued, it is Parliament that is the defender of the liberties of the people, of our ancient constitution and of our freedoms. I, I give way. Welcome to another edition of Why Parliament Works podcast. This week, my guest is Caroline Shenton, the author of two wonderful books about the 19th century Palace of Westminster. The Day Parliament Burnt Down tells the story of the 1834 fire, and Mr. Barry's War recounts the Herculean efforts, which followed to rebuild the palace and create the neo-Gothic masterpiece, which is now so famous around the world. Caroline, thank you.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Um, Before we begin discussing the subject of your first two books, i wonder if i might ask a quick question about your time as director of the parliamentary archives how did you find this role and was that what prompted your inspiration for your search about the 19th century palace
1: yes so i joined the parliamentary archives in 1999 having come from the national archives and interestingly while i was at the national archives i Uh, managed to catalogue some medieval tally sticks and then when I turned up at the Parliamentary Archives by lunchtime on my first day I discovered that nearly all of the records of the House of Commons had been destroyed in the fire of 1834 and so there was a great hole in our collections and my mind went back to the tally sticks that I'd been working on six years previously And I realised that the two were connected. And that's really what sparked my interest in the fire of 1834, which was caused by the tally sticks being foolishly burnt in the furnaces under the old House of Lords chamber. And one thing led to another. And I became, well, really quite obsessed with this story, which had never been told properly in full. And after about eight years of research on and off, Uh, I managed to put together the story of the fire almost minute by minute.
0: So the tally sticks not only lead to the fire, but they lead to your interest in it and the history of the fire. Correct. could Could you explain about how the tally sticks caused the fire and the sort of sequence of errors that then allowed that fire to take hold?
1: Yes. So I describe the fire of 1834 sometimes to people, particularly those in the public sector and parliament as a story of change management gone horribly wrong. This was a time in the early 1830s when huge changes were taking place in government administration. And at that time, a number of government departments were based actually in the palace complex at Westminster, in the old palace. This was before Whitehall was really established as the the place for great ministerial buildings. And... In 1833, the Exchequer, which was the medieval and early modern department of finance, finally closed down. And it was a result of the closing down of the Exchequer and the need to clear out the rooms there for a new court of bankruptcy in the Palace of Westminster that led to the need to get rid of what appeared to be uh, large quantities of old wooden sticks stored in the Exchequer. And these were tally sticks. They were a form of receipt for government income from the Middle Ages onwards. Uh, if you were a sheriff in the Middle Ages, you would be told by the king to go off and collect taxes And come back to Westminster twice a year, once at Easter and once at Michaelmas to pay in your money and you would be cut a tally stick, which is really an unforgeable receipt for government income. Uh, The money would be Uh, indicated on the stick by a series of notches and then the stick would be split in half. You would take away one half as the sheriff as proof that you'd paid in and the exchequer would keep one half also as proof that you'd paid in. And it was a way of preventing sheriffs coming back six months later and saying, well, actually, I paid in £20 more last time than you said I did. Because all the tally cutter has to do is to match up the two halves of the stick and show that the notches on them match exactly, and they'll realise that the sheriff is trying to pull the wool over their eyes. And this extraordinary system, which began in the 1130s, I think it was, carried on at Westminster until 1826, uh, and uh, left behind it uh, a large accumulation of tally sticks, In fact, those tally sticks were not medieval tally sticks. They would probably have been the tally sticks from the previous decade or so of tally cutting. And what would have happened in earlier times is that the sticks would have been given away to exchequer officials or palace servants to use for firewood once they were no longer of any business use. But because the exchequer closed down a few years later, um, there was no one there doing that and they were just forgotten about really and, and their purpose was overlooked. And so when a space had to be found in the old palace for the new court of bankruptcy, The clerk of work at Westminster decided to um, clear out those rooms to make room and to uh, get rid of the sticks. And his first idea was to burn them in a giant bonfire behind the palace buildings between the Thames and the speaker's house, as it was then. Uh, And a few days later, he woke up (laughs) and thought, no, that's a really bad idea. It's going to annoy the neighbours. It's going to cause... Uh, crowds to gather, people will pilfer the sticks, we don't want that happening. So he then came up with his second idea, uh, which was to burn the tally sticks in the underfloor heating furnaces under the House of Lords chamber. And as a result of various errors, negligence by the housekeeper, negligence by the clerk of works, employing some uh, in-house labourers who were not very trustworthy, as a result of that, the furnaces were overloaded. A chimney fire occurred, and ultimately that led to the burning down of the houses of parliament.
0: And the housekeeper goes into the House of Lords and says, "Goodness, it's hot in here," and then does nothing about it. Is that? I mean, I paraphrase, but that's <laughs> broadly right. Isn't that it? that
1: that's correct. Um, there were several occasions during the day when she and her cleaning staff went in and noticed the smoke and the strong smell of burning wood and did nothing about it, and. Around four o'clock in the afternoon, there were two gentlemen tourists coming up uh, to Westminster to, to look at the famous Armada tapestries, in fact, that hung in the old House of Lords, because then, as now, the Houses of Parliament were a great tourist attraction, and they complained to her about... The smoke. They said they couldn't see the tapestries because there was so much smoke in the way. Uh, and she, uh, she, she ignored their their protests. She tried to distract them from uh, worries about potentially a fire going on somewhere in the palace. And she shuffled them off to a different part of the building to show them round. And I think there were there are quite a lot of complex reasons why this is. Um, and it's clear that she was negligent. She may have been suffering from senile dementia. Certainly her. Her evidence to the public inquiry that followed the fire suggested that she really wasn't on top of things. But I think one of the most interesting aspects of this is that actually the role of housekeeper in the House of Lords was a sinecure. And the the actual official housekeeper of the House of Lords did not live on site. She was an aristocratic woman who delegated the work to a deputy. The deputy lived with her family in the attic and was responsible for Key holding and cleaning and so on. She was away on the day of the fire. She'd left her mother-in-law in charge, um, and really the house, the deputy housekeeper, and the deputy housekeeper's mother-in-law are much more interested in making sure that the tourists have a good time and that they get a tip at the end of the day because that is their main source of income. Uh, because they're not paid a salary for this, all the money is going uh, to the official housekeeper, the sinecure holder. Um. So then, they don't really care very much, perhaps, or care less about the emerging health and safety catastrophe that's going on.
0: And and had people been worried that there might be a fire? Had there been discussions about this? Had there people been saying we must um, do things to reduce the risk, or did it come out of the blue?
1: Yes, there had been warning signs. There had been a couple of small fires noted in the years. Running up to 1834, particularly relating to the the flues of those furnaces underneath the House of Lord's Chamber. But perhaps most interestingly, John Soane, the great architect who had put forward plans in both the 1790s for a redesign of the palace and then did various uh, bits of incidental work in the 1820s to the palace, not least building a new law courts building. And a new royal gallery for the House of Lords. In 1828, he warned about the possibility of the fire. And I wonder if I might read a little bit about this a quote from him, which I always think about in terms of today's dilemmas. Um, he, of course, is trying to get, he's trying to get the job, he's trying to get the commission to do even more work at Westminster. So there is a bit of special pleading here, but nevertheless, he says uh, in talking about the uh, the rundown state of the palace. The exterior of these old buildings, forming the front of the House of Lords, as well as the interior, is constructed chiefly with timber covered with plaster. In such an extensive assemblage of combustible materials, should a fire happen, what would become of the painted chamber, the House of Commons and Westminster Hall? Where would the progress of the fire be arrested? And he wrote that to parliamentarians in 1828, And six years later, he was proved right.
0: And when the fire came, um, it was a tourist attraction. People came and gawped, but the key decision was made to save Westminster Hall. Why were they so excited about Westminster Hall? Why was that so important to them? Because of course the same thing happens uh, in 1941 when the bombs fall on the Palace of Westminster. The decisions made to save Westminster Hall, that great sense of, continuity with the history of parliament
1: exactly the fire bursts out about half past six in the evening and by nine o'clock it's clear that the entire southern end of the palace is being engulfed by the flames and can't possibly be saved so that's all of the house of lords and the house of commons has also gone up uh, like a roman candle pugin says who was in the in the crowd in the fire watching it ab- about eight o'clock and at nine o'clock the Chancellor of the Exchequer cries out, damn the House of Commons, let it blaze away, but save, oh, save the hall. And the reason for that is, just as it is today, that Westminster Hall is this extraordinary building at the time of the fire, nearly 800 years old. And it's the great Anglo-Norman Feasting Hall. It's the place where, since Magna Carta, the law court's Uh, had been held up until the 1820s. It was the location of state trials, including that of Charles I. And it was uh, the location of coronation feasts. And it had had a a wide range of uses uh, beyond parliamentary uses as well. But it was most famous of all for its great hammerbeam roof, Possibly, in fact, in my opinion, the greatest piece of medieval carpentry in the world, uh, constructed at the end of the 14th century to the commission of Richard II. And everybody recognised the need to save this building as a national monument. I mean, regardless of it being within a parliamentary complex.
0: One of the interesting thoughts is what might have happened to our constitution if the buildings had survived? Because there's this famous quotation of Churchill that everyone knows that we make our buildings and then they make us. Do you think there would have been any constitutional differences if the old Parliament buildings had survived?
1: Goodness, well, I mean, who knows? But the point is that the, and I'm thinking here of the layout of the both chambers, a rectangular layout with benches opposite one another, that, that was the layout in the pre-1834 palace, and that was the layout that... Barry continued in his redesign of the new palace, and indeed, which uh, parliamentarians wished to see continue. And that, in itself, was certainly from the Commons end of things, was based on the Chapel of St Stephen's, the medieval royal chapel, when the palace was still a royal chapel in the Middle Ages. Um, And so, in terms of what some people think of as our <laughs> very Aggressive oppositional form of politics, with uh, of the two part, the two main parties facing one another like dogs on a leash, as um, Nancy Astor put it. Um, really, that's a very long-standing arrangement, and there's not really much evidence to suggest that, for example, if a a classical design had come in in the nineteenth century, with a a hemicycle a, a semicircular moon-shaped uh, half moon-shaped i should say a uh, uh, chamber that that would necessarily have made westminster politics uh less boisterous let's put it like that i mean you only have to look at certain uh, parliamentary hemicycles across the world um uh Turkey, for example, comes to mind um, uh, and various other ones to, to see that, in fact, um, this doesn't stop people uh, from climbing over the benches and sort of, you know, laying punches on one another. There's nothing intrinsically um, uh, less oppositional about having a having a hemicycle. Um, uh, and and I I wonder whether it, if the palace had survived, it it probably would have just simply deteriorated to the point where MPs and peers had to move out anyway. I mean, it was in a it was in a desperate state by 1834, and as I said, there have been there had been decades of attempts to either rebuild the building or indeed to move away from Westminster altogether. And, and the, the most assertive attempts were made by the MP for Middlesex, who, who suggested that uh, the Commons should move either to, across St James's Park to Mayfair somewhere, the, the new burgeoning West End, much more fashionable, much more in the middle of things, or indeed to move to Marylebone Fields aka Regent's Park, where the zoo had set up just a few years before. Um, so uh, who knows really what might have happened. Uh, we might have transplanted Parliament away from Westminster altogether, or um, it may have it may have carried on on the same site, who knows.
0: And instead what happened is the competition is held and Barry puts in design, his design, he wins, Pugin obviously there to assist him. And they, they went for that design partly because of the great symbolism and the expression that they wanted to make of the power of democracy. Is, is that a fair uh, view of what they decided and the, and the historical linkages that they wanted to show? They, they, they were very keen on the neo-Gothic because of the feeling that that linked with the history of, and, of and the, you mean
1: the, the politicians chose? Yes. The, well, actually, it was it was a separate competition. It it wasn't actually judged by, uh, it wasn't judged by architects. Um, it was judged by men of taste. Um, they went for the design because they felt that that was the most superior design that they'd received. There were there were ninety seven entries. A lot of them, either very mundane or very ecclesiastical, and really, really a sort of super-duper cathedral in some ways because the the competition rules stated that the design had to be Gothic or Elizabethan, by which they meant perpendicular Gothic, really. Or, um, uh, And uh, the reason for the requirement in the parliamentary competition that it should be Gothic was because they had the... Uh, the site of the ruins of St. Stephen's Chapel, which had been revealed by the fire, burned away uh, from the, the later accretions of the, the House of Commons that it had become, uh, the skeleton of, of St. Stephen's Chapel was there. This great gothic, lost gothic building had reappeared once again, and that was hugely influential in deciding that the correct British style, the correct Westminster democracy style was gothic. Uh, but in terms of Barry and Pugin's own design it was simply the superior design of all of those put forward and really it was a it was a combination of both men's genius really uh, Barry's genius at at, uh, at ground planning and spatial awareness and uh, a very regular classical structure and then Pugin's uh, detailing on the exterior and interior. And I think Pugin's description of the building is all classical, sir, Tudor details on a Grecian body.
0: So they have the competition, Pugin and Barry win, or Barry and Pugin win. They have the best design, the design that meets the requirements that were set out. Um, And that's not by any means the end, is it? It's very much the beginning because there are endless rows about the detail from day one. And nobody seems to be sure who's in charge, that there are so many competing interests as to who should make the decisions.
1: Correct. I mean, it was, Barry originally estimated it was going to take six years to, uh, uh, to build the palace and it eventually took, well, some people might say it has never actually been completed, but let's say it's about 24 years uh, after he, and indeed after his death. Really, it was, it was completed by his son. And he originally forecast it to, to be £710,000 and it came in at £2.4 million or something like that. Um, and this was as a result of various <laughs> structural problems, if you like, with the governance, if we can put it like that. That yes, it wasn't clear to Barry who his client was. Uh, was it... Uh, the Office of Works, which was the body in charge of maintaining the building and which had run the competition. Was it the, uh, the House of Lords or the House of Commons, the individual members collectively? Was it the Speaker? Was it the government? Was it the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, who was constantly pressing down on costs? Um, it, was, it was really very unclear. And every time uh, one one supposed client put forward what they thought ought to happen, another one would come in and stymie it. Um, So that was one of the major problems, not not having clarity about who his actual client was.
0: And that gets even harder when Sir Robert Peel leaves office and dies fairly shortly afterwards because Peel actually had a clear idea of what he wanted and was a great supporter of Barry's and managed to uh, get through the political difficulties for him as, as prime minister.
1: Peel was, a, Peel was a great supporter. And yes, it, it, it started to spiral out of control after he left office. And that's also the time at which uh, the real building work begins. That's the time at which the superstructure starts to go up um, and the costs increase. And because the politicians had decided to stay on site in temporary accommodation made out of the burned ruins, re-roofed, um, it became even more complex because, of course, being on site, it meant that they were sort of nosying around everything that was happening. They could see what was going on and they'd all got their own ideas that you know, uh, written on the back of a fag packet about how things could be improved from what they were seeing, not really understanding what was going on around them. Um, so uh, that caused huge complication in the 1840s in particular.
0: And if I remember your brilliant book um, correctly, the House of Commons literally moved into the charred remains of the House of Lords and put a roof on the top.
1: That's correct. It was re-roofed and given a lick of paint and some nice papier-mâché mouldings, and uh, there they stayed until 1852, and the Lords moved into... Another famous part of the palace called the Painted Chamber, which in the Middle Ages had been the king's state bedroom uh, and was in use as a courtroom just before the fire. Uh, and that was again re-roofed and uh, given a lick of paint and they stayed in there till 1847.
0: And the phoenix arises then from the ashes. I want you to say something about the symbolism because it seems to me just walking through the Palace of Westminster. You mentioned earlier that it remains a great tourist attraction. The symbolism of democracy throughout the palace is fundamental to what Barry and Putin were trying to express.
1: In ter- I mean, in terms of the layout, um, it wasn't designed really for public access, but it was designed to place the the royal throne in the House of Lords at the centre of. The building, if you like <laughs> uh, and uh, as 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 was seen in the in the nineteenth century at the center of the constitution, so uh, at the state opening where we have the monarch and the Lords and the Commons all gathering together in front of the throne, um, uh, that was really what Barry thought of as the heart of the building and that is the point indeed at which he brought Pugin back into uh, the creation of the palace uh, because after Pugin helped him with the initial designs uh, Pugin then went off for about eight years and forged his own career and became really very famous it was when Barry was having problems with the design for the throne itself that that's when Pugin came back on board so I think, I think, that, I think that is, that's, really, that's really what Barry thought of as the, the centrepiece of, of the building, as embodying the British constitution. But in terms of representative democracy, if you like, this is not a building that was deliberately designed so that the public would, could have access. And of course, that's potentially leading to some of the issues that are being tackled today.
0: Yes, absolutely. And the um, but the constitutional progression that is shown through the art in the palace and so on, it's a very whiggish interpretation of history.
1: It is very whiggish, but a lot of that art only comes in in the 20th century anyway. I mean, they they were running out of money desperately. Um, and particularly after uh, Prince Albert, who was in charge of the Fine Arts Commission, responsible for... Uh, the decorative and fine art of the palace died in uh, in 18 was it 1861? He died. Um, really, really, there was no great impetus for uh, magnificent uh, mural art, uh, and that that really came in, uh, you know, several generations later.
0: And and you mentioned the um, Armada um, tapestries and the fact that some people might argue that the palace still isn't completed. Um, When I first got into Parliament in 2010, it was just about the time that the reproductions of the Armada tapestries as paintings were completed. And um, if I remember rightly, uh, Prince Albert had indeed sponsored this, was very keen on it. By the time he died, only one of the six paintings had been done and the other five were completed 150 years later. So, I I mean, I, I think that in itself rather proves your point.
1: Yes, that's right. And I think one of, one of the highlights of my time in Parliament was actually going to the workshops of the artist who was reconstructing the Armada tapestries and seeing these gigantic canvases. And they are huge. They, look, they don't look very much in the Prince's Chamber now because they're so high up. But um, just watching them actually being constructed was amazing.
0: I was, I was very lucky. They were briefly on display in the Royal Gallery before they yeah. went. Yeah. And you'll say, so right, when you saw them... Uh, At at eye level, they're enormous. When they're up um, uh, above the um, Tudor uh, queens um, in the Prince's Chamber, they look really surprisingly small. But it's fascinating how long run these um, building projects are. So that really leads me to my final question for you. What do you think we should learn from Mr. Barry's war?
1: Well, um, I think uh, that there's certainly, in terms of the current refurbishment, there's certainly a need, which has clearly been taken on board, uh, for it to be very clear who the client is in this, uh, to uh, somehow to be able to uh, delegate uh, decision-making to um, the sponsor body and uh, and to the delivery authority to be clear about what their relative responsibilities are and to not keep revisiting decisions that have been made um, which is what caused a lot of delays and extra expense in the 19th century. Um, and to provide a structure in which the experts can get on with their work um, and to recognize that even if this building were not being occupied by parliament it is the face of London it is the historic face of democracy in this country and it would need to be maintained <laughs> Uh, so that it remains upright as a World Heritage site, (laughs) regardless of who occupied it.
0: Well, I I completely agree with that. And it seems to me that if you're going to spend all the money doing it up anyway, you might as well keep it as the centre of our democracy, in fact, as well as in symbolism. Uh, Though I am glad that they are currently, as we speak, completing the testing on the new fire safety systems. So I think the risk of catastrophic fire, has been significantly reduced in the last few years, but not, not removed altogether. But as, as leader of the House, that is the one thing that, um, if it weren't the fact I'm normally a very good sleeper, I would lose sleep over. The, <laughs> the, the fear of a repetition.
1: Yes, uh, well, something- I, uh, the, the watching the fire at... Uh- Notre Dame um, a couple of years back live (laughs) um, I'm sorry to say on the television uh, I'm afraid that I did think all the way through to myself gosh this is what it must have been like in 1834 to watch a fire spread so quickly across uh, an unprotected wooden roof system and obviously that is not what we have today at Westminster but it really did bring home to me just what a catastrophe it would be uh, if today's Houses of Parliament did burn down uh, again. So, uh, yes, I think that's a salutary lesson for our times.
0: Indeed. Well, thank you so much and um, very kind of you to join us. I would recommend any of our listeners uh, do read your books. Um, I've read one of them and I look forward to reading uh, the other following this conversation. Thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you very much.